Let's begin with prayer then. Our gracious God and Father, we thank Thee that uh, we are Thine and Thou art ours. That Father, Thou hast sent Thy Son to make Thee known and to reveal unto us the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we do not thank Thee and appreciate all that Jesus Christ suffered and, and endured for us, but Lord, give to us continued growth and understanding of the marvelous work of our salvation. We pray, Father, for thy spirit to be granted to us as we consider thy word this evening, that thou would make it alive, for indeed thy word is uh, alive and, and thy word uh, pierces even to the innermost part of our being. We pray, our God, that thou would awaken us from our spiritual drowsiness to uh, walk in faithfulness unto thee. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin reading John 12, 37 to the end of the chapter, but our focus will be upon the verses 42 through 50. So we'll begin with 37, just to pick up the context from last study into this present study. John 12, 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath re believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said his eyes when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, and seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words, and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me, 
and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. So this is uh, John 12, and uh, having just read verses 42 through 50, where we are this evening. Just uh, by way of a brief review from the previous uh, study, uh, John, beginning with verse 37, John 12, 37, adds uh, his own comments. They're spirit-inspired comments, but they are his comments. He departs from the narrative of Jesus and what Jesus is saying to this uh, crowd of people. And from 37 uh, through 43, we see the, that John is adding certain um, commentary that takes us back to Isaiah to explain basically why the people at that time could see the miracles that Jesus performed and yet not believe in him. And so here we see that John says uh, that the reason, and he's going back to Isaiah 6.10, the reason that they could see all these miracles and yet not believe in him is because God had hardened their hearts, uh, God had blinded their eyes, God had deafened their ears, he says, as a judgment that fell upon them for their rebellion against his covenant, his commandments, and his mercy that he had shown to them. The Lord continually says, I sent my prophets to you early in the morning. They prophesied to you. You rejected them and, and even persecuted them. And Jesus told a parable, you remember, about uh, a vineyard owner uh, who basically uh, rented out his vineyard to certain uh, people. And they were supposed to take the rent and the produce, they were supposed to pay rent to the owner, and they didn't. And it says that, in the parable, Jesus says that uh, he sent um, his servants to come before them and to say, basically, why aren't you producing and giving to me uh, the produce as rent uh, for using my vineyard. And this is basically taking us back to the Old Testament uh, with regard to the, all the prophets that God sent. The vineyard was the kingdom of God that was given to Israel that they were to care for. And they didn't produce the fruit of it. And finally, the owner says, uh, they haven't listened. They, they uh, stoned, Jesus says in the parable, they, they beat up the prophets, they stoned the prophets. And he says, finally, the owner says, uh, surely they'll uh, honor my son. I'll send my son and they'll honor him. And this again speaks of the Lord, uh, the father sending his son. 
uh, to Israel, and they say, let's uh, take the son, the, inherit the vineyard will be ours, we'll claim it as our own, and they took him out and, and they uh, um, uh, killed, sl uh, slay, uh, slay, uh, did slay the, the son as well. So this is basically the rebellion that we see here on the part of Israel uh, against the Lord and the judgment he brought where he uh, says in Isaiah uh, that the reason they can't believe is because I've blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. This was God's judgment upon them. And that's why, uh, again, they couldn't believe at the time of Jesus. Uh, all the miracles, they liked the miracles, but they didn't believe them. Uh, the message. They didn't believe in Christ who performed the miracles. They were more enthralled with the, with the miraculous ability, but not with the truth uh, which Jesus brought, which again, the miracles were only intended to turn them to Christ who performed the miracles, not to become so enraptured with the miracles that they tuned out what Jesus was saying, but rather to listen all the more uh, to what Jesus was saying because of the miracles. But that wasn't the case. This is why the same sermon may be preached uh, in on a particular Lord's Day or the same Bible study and why there would be completely different reactions to what is said amongst people. One person may be brought to tears of repentance and may be drawn to the mercy of God based upon what he or she hears. The heart may be softened and humbled before the Lord, whereas the same person, or in the same congregation, listening to the same sermon or the same Bible study, a different person uh, may become uh, insensitive, may become calloused to what is being said, hardened, because of continuing in unrepentant sin. And so, you know, for me, and as I, you know, lead this study this evening, I, I do not want to be given over to my sin. I do not want to be given over to unbelief. I do not want to be given over to um, whatever uh, sin that I find um, that I fall into, I do not want to be delivered over to that. I want to be delivered from it. And so that is why it's so important that we receive with joy the mercy uh, that we hear about in sermons and in Bible studies that we don't just let it go in one ear and out the other because if we do that, it's going to make us calloused. It's going to make us hardened. It's not going to soften our hearts, and God, by way of his judgment, uh, will give us over to our sin, and to our rebellion, to our unbelief, our lack of repentance. That's what he did with the Jews. We're no different. We're not any more special. And so let us take heed as well. So the new portion, beginning with verse, verse 42, John 12, 42, 
says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So here's a very interesting insight into John's knowledge, the Apostle John, who is the human author of this gospel, uh, into his knowledge of the religious leaders among the Jews at that time. These are his comments. These are not the words of Jesus, per se. These are the words of John. They're inspired. But uh, John says that many of the chief rulers believed in Christ. Uh, but they hid their faith in Christ and kept it to themselves or kept it to a very small circle of people so that they were not exposed for believing in Jesus. Now, whether they had true saving faith or whether it was simply an outward profession of faith, only God knew for sure. Um, but true faith, dear ones, uh, may be in someone who fears the consequences of being outspoken. In other words, it's not inconsistent with true faith to have certain fears. Uh, true faith doesn't uh, uh, reside in in only those who have no fear uh, of what men may think of them or what men may say about them. True faith uh, was present uh, in Peter's life. Uh, when Peter, you remember, denied the Lord because he feared, he feared uh, uh, being exposed as one of Christ's disciples. Uh, there was true faith in Peter at that time. Uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, he may not have been a true believer uh, in Christ uh, that evening when he came, but the gospel was very clearly presented to him. And at the end of Christ's life, uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, provided a, a tomb for the Lord's body. That's where he was placed from off of the cross. But we read that not only did Joseph help remove the body of Christ and place it into the tomb, but Nicodemus joined him at that time uh, in providing... Uh, incense, herbs, various things that would be wrapped and enclosed within the, the strips of cloth wrapped around a body. And so at some point, Nicodemus, it would appear, truly came to faith in Christ. And uh, nevertheless, uh, he, he did not become a you know, immediately, because we don't hear anything about that, at least, an outspoken uh, follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, he still may have been among those uh, that here it says in verse 42 that 
many among the chief rulers believed on Christ because the Pharisees, they didn't confess him, lest they should be put out, excommunicated uh, from the synagogue. But how we, how we truly evidence, I think, true saving faith, though I do believe true saving faith can reside in one who does fear what others might say or do. Um, I do know, and we find many examples throughout the Bible, that where we truly see faith is when it's exercised in situations where there is reason to fear. And so in spite of the fear, faith is exercised you see, true courage is not the absence of fear. Why should we be courageous? What, what is there to be bold or courageous about if there is no awareness of fear, if there's no presence of fear, if one doesn't even you know, realize that there's something to be afraid of? And that's, that's what makes courage, courage. is when we recognize certain fears but true courage says, I've got to please God, I've got to do what's right in spite of the fear. It, rather than being paralyzed by fear, true courage says, I'm afraid, acknowledges, this is fearful, this is a fearful situation, but nevertheless, I'm going to do what the Lord says, what God commands. I'm going to stand for his truth. I'm going to not dishonor him in this situation. I'm going to bring him glory in spite of the fear that I feel or I sense. We are called to be witnesses uh, for Christ, uh, not secret agents. Um, and so Jesus said to before he ascended into heaven, in, John, in Acts 1.8, you'll recall that uh, ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. I would just uh, say that if, if you or myself, if we are particularly afraid of others knowing that we are Christians. Uh, if we are afraid of bearing testimony for Christ before certain people, um, uh, we'd rather just kind of keep that quiet. We don't want others to know in certain situations uh, or certain people that we you know, trust in Christ, that we follow Christ. Uh, if that's the way we are, I, I think that the way in which we need to react is to recognize that's, that's how we're, we're, we're responding in that situation. Uh, not simply to go on and on and on, but to say, you know, I'm really afraid to let people know I'm a Christian uh, in this situation or with these particular people. I don't even want, you know, to talk about anything, you know, related to Christ at all, even, you know, not that, not that we, in every situation or every 
relationship we have that we, uh, you know, just blurt out, you know, that we're Christians or anything, but, but when we're afraid to do so, you know, we need to be wise in how we do so. But when we're afraid to do so, that's different. But I think that we need to pray and say, Lord, help me not to be afraid that I'm a Christian. Uh, Jesus endured uh, so much suffering, more suffering than anybody. He was not afraid to claim me as one of his own. He was not afraid to go to the cross. Uh, uh, he expressed um, the distress that was in his soul in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he wept, and, uh, and when he sweat great, um, like, uh, great drops of blood, certainly great distress, but uh, he faced the cross and was not af uh, afraid to be identified with us, for us to be um, owned by him. And so let us not be afraid to own him uh, before others. Verse 43, speaking of these same rulers among the Jews, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So fear of man was, was one um, sin that kept these Jewish leaders from exposing themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. But there was a second sin that prevented them uh, from exposing themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. And the second sin was their love for the praise of men. First of all, they were afraid being cast out of the synagogue, being excommunicated. They, they were protecting them, themselves and their position. Um, uh, peer pressure uh, that uh, kept them from being open, uh, afraid they'd forfeit their positions, they'd uh, not be uh, able to continue as rulers among uh, the Jews. But... The second sin was that they, they loved the praise of men. They desired, they coveted others to think well of them. Now, that's a very common thing. We all, I think, <laughs> would prefer to have everybody think well of us. But when we want others to think well of us, even at the expense of the truth of Jesus Christ, that we don't care about Christ or his truth, as long as somebody else thinks well of us, then we love the praise of men more than we love the praise of God. That's, that's the sin here. That's the second sin. They wanted to be esteemed highly in the eyes of men more than in the eyes of God. They prefer, preferred to have the well done, you know, good job from men over well done, good job from God. 
you know, on the final day of judgment, we're not going to care about the well done, good job from men. All we're going to care about is hearing the well done, good job from God. We need to think of that much, much more often because that day is coming for every one of us. That day is coming uh, as surely as the sun comes up in the morning and sets in the evening. To be mocked, laughed at, to be persecuted for Christ was not something that these uh, rulers were willing to endure for the sake of Jesus Christ. In John 5.44, which we have already considered in a previous study, Jesus says, How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? How can you believe and trust in, in God when you would rather receive honor from men rather than from God? And we can only, again, ask ourselves, is that the case with me? Um, we are the only ones who can truly answer that question for ourselves. And again, we will have to answer that question uh, one day uh, when we stand before God. Whose honor did we truly desire? Did we desire the honor of men or did we desire the honor of God more? Perhaps there's not a greater temptation to us as Christians than to be men-pleasers. Uh, pleasing men at the expense of pleasing God. See, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul says even concerning those who were servants and had masters, in other words, who were they to have as the one that they chiefly sought to please? Who should they be pleasing? Who should be uppermost in their mind, even as servants? Should their should first and foremost they be seeking to please men or to please God? And we read in verses 5 through 8, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So even in the work that we do, though, again, we want to do a good job for 
those that we work for. Um, if we're only men pleasers, then when the boss isn't watching us, or if our parents aren't watching us, then we goof off. But if we are God pleasers, we don't goof off because we're not there to please men first and foremost, we're there to please God. And so again, uh, these who were rulers among the Jews, uh, they were men pleasers. God calls us to be men, women, young people, and children of conviction, to have convictions about the truth. Not to be somewhere neutral, wishy-washy about the truth, but to say, no, this is what God says, this is where I stand. This is, this is not simply a preference. This is a conviction. I can change to please others if it's merely a preference. I can do that so, so as to avoid conflict. But I can't change a conviction to please others. That's to become a man-pleaser, not a God-pleaser. And so we are to be those who trust in Jesus and are willing to follow him and his truth even in, into a fiery furnace and even into a lion's den. That's where standing for our convictions, standing for the truth, ultimately leads us. If we can't do that in front of a few friends or a few family members, how will we ever do so uh, before those who truly hate us and despise us? Verse 44, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. So now beginning with verse 44, we move from the commentary that the Apostle John was giving uh, and, his, and his own inspired, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired thoughts. Now we move back to the narrative where the Lord Jesus is speaking to uh, a multitude, to a group of people here. These words actually, uh, beginning with verse 44 through 50, uh, the, these words are uh, among the last words that Jesus spoke publicly uh, before his crucifixion. Beginning in the next chapter, chapter 13, John moves to the Last Supper. So Jesus has moved from his public ministry now to the Last Supper, beginning with verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, um, which will lead then uh, to taking his disciples, uh, teaching just his disciples a number of important uh, truths, then 
taking them to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be betrayed uh, by Judas, and he'll be taken captive and falsely tried, crucified, buried, raised from the dead. So this is, again, at the end of chapter 12. These are the, uh, among the last words of the Lord Jesus being, that he spoke publicly by way of public discourse. But here, in verse 44, Jesus once again declares that he didn't come of his own initiative, merely of his own initiative. He didn't uh, set himself aside. Uh, he didn't send himself, but he was sent by God the Father. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, he says, don't simply believe in Christ only, but they believe in the Father who sent him. Now remember, he's speaking to Jews who uh, some may truly believe in him, but as he gets closer and closer to the time of his arrest, uh, there are more and more also that are outspoken in their disbelief and expressing their disbelief about Christ. And so he's, he's saying you know, to them that if you truly believe in the Father, God the Father, then you'll believe in me because he's the one who sent me. I didn't send myself, he sent me. And the opposite consequence is likewise true. To disbelieve Jesus was to disbelieve the Father. It's because there's an unbreakable union between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But here, speaking primarily of the Father and the Son, there's an unbreakable divine union. Two distinct persons, Father and Son, but the same divine nature. Verse 45, Jesus says, And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. The next chapter, two chapters, in chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, Philip says to the Lord Jesus, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus says unto him, that is unto Philip, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now, Jesus doesn't say that because the Father and the Son are two, are, are the same person. They are two distinct persons. But what Jesus is saying is to behold the Son, who is God in the flesh, is to behold the Father, who is God. Again, he's saying the Father and the Son united together in one eternal and unchangeable divine nature. Early on in John chapter 1 verse 18 we read no man has seen God 
that is, as to the divine nature, seeing the divine nature of God, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So how do we see the Father? We see the Father in the Son. That's what uh, that passage is saying. Likewise, Paul says in Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Christ, who being the brightness of his glory, of God's glory, and the express image of his person, of God's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory and is the express image of his person. Verse 46 Jesus says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. The world, the world is, uh, and this comes as no shock uh, to us who have eyes to see, but the world is in spiritual, intellectual darkness. Darkness, I mean, uh, so dark at times you could cut it with a knife. It seems so dark. Uh, and Jesus says he's the light of not only Israel, but the light of the world. He's the light to um, even Gentile nations. By God's common mercy, men are able to understand much about the world. Even non-Christians are able to understand much about the world, no doubt. But apart from Christ the light, they distort. Even the most intelligent, uh, humanly speaking, among those in the world, without Christ the light, they distort and pervert the true knowledge that they even know about the world. Colossians 2.3 says that all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden in Jesus Christ. All of knowledge is hidden in Christ, is found in Christ. Take just one question, the origin of man. Okay, just that one matter, the origin of man. When Christ the light is omitted from that discussion, scientists are left in darkness to devise impossible theories, impossible theories to explain man's origin. However, when Christ, the light, supplies and guides our knowledge about the origin of man, the biblical account that we find in Genesis chapters 1 through 2 
is the only explanation for man's origin. God created man. Man didn't create himself. Man did not, uh, again, by way of impossibilities, originate by way of its man's complexity. Nothing more complex in all of the world, even more than a computer, than man. And yet, who would say that a computer simply uh, arose by way of, of uh, natural selection or by way of, of, uh, of millions of years of evolution or something like that, everyone would say, you see a computer like that, says there must have been someone to design that computer. And yet when it comes to man who is in darkness apart from the light of Christ, they, that's what they say. They reveal their foolishness, not their wisdom and knowledge. And so exclude the light, the light of Christ. And he says he's the light of the world. Exclude that and what we have is darkness. Not only darkness in science, but darkness in politics. The answer is not found in a political party. They're not, none of these political parties are defending Jesus Christ. None of them are defending God's moral law. They are simply taking what they think to be among their constituents, the most popular positions in order to get reelected. What you have left is darkness in culture. Why do we see our culture falling apart? Why do we see such ridiculous, absurd, immoral things happening all around us? Darkness. They've rejected the light. When, when a culture rejects the light, God gives them over to their darkness and they begin to manifest. This is the stuff that God says is manifest. If you read Romans chapter 1, God gave them over. That's what we find as well. If we reject the light, we find darkness in our families. We find darkness in our church. We find darkness in our theology if we reject Christ the light. And so it's not about, we hear so much about uh, equity, equality in our culture today, justice. Uh, these people truly don't care about equity, equality, justice, they truly do not. Uh, what they care about and what their goal is, is to destroy all of the institutions that God has established. They're not going to be satisfied with simply so, some so-called equality. No, they want to erase, they want to eradicate, they want to destroy. 
the institutions that God has established. They want to destroy God's moral law. In Psalm 2, it speaks of the rulers of this world trying to tear off the fetters uh, from them. The, those fetters, those bonds, are God's moral commandments that bind everyone, but bind rulers, and they're trying to rip them off, thinking that they can dethrone God and his institutions. God laughs at them from on high because his son has been seated upon the throne and his son is going to reckon with the nations, has in the past, and he will continue to reckon with the nations as seek to remove those moral fetters, bonds of his law. Verse 47, And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus says in John 5.22 that all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son because the Son is King. Thus Jesus, in this verse, verse 47, he's not denying that he will judge um, the world. He's not denying that he will uh, judge those who reject him. What he's actually affirming is that the final judgment does not occur at his first coming. So he's not saying he's not going to be judging anybody. In verse 47, he says, And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. He's not saying that that person will never stand before him as far as God's judgment, but he's saying he did not come in his first coming to bring about find the final judgment. That's what he's saying. The final judgment is coming on the last day, but it is not yet arrived. In Matthew 5, 25, 31, for example, you can look that up, but Jesus will sit as judge to judge all people. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. So that will occur, but... In his first coming, he came to redeem elect sinners from the world, the world of all nations and languages, social status, age groups, and, and both genders. So to reject Jesus does not leave a person in some kind of morally neutral position. It leaves them under God's condemnation if they reject Jesus Christ. John 3, 18 says, this is again Jesus speaking, he says, uh, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So there is condemnation that rests upon those even now, but the final judgment doesn't occur now, but condemnation does rest upon those who do not believe and receive Christ. Verse 48, 
Jesus then continues and says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Once again, I just indicate here that Jesus is not saying, again, those who reject him will not be judged by him, but only by his words, by the word of Christ, because Jesus will render judgment. But what he is saying is that the truth will be brought up on the final judgment. In other words, God's commandments, God's moral law will be brought up at the final judgment. And uh, our our love for his word or our lack of love, our, our disobedience, our rebellion against his word. That's going to be, again, as the court sits on that final day of judgment, the books are opened. And we are judged again by way of how we have not only treated Christ as, and what who he is, but how have we treated his truth, his words, have we loved them? Have we believed them? Have we, have we followed what he has given to us? Or have we basically rejected them? Have we not cared? Have we considered, again, it's more important to please men than to please Christ and his word? And again, takes us back to how do we how do we receive sermons how do we receive bible studies how do we receive family worship how do we receive when we open our own bibles and read them how do we receive that because our reception or rejection of those things are taking them and receiving and Applying them in our lives tells, basically says whether we believe it or we don't. Whether we receive it or we don't. Whether we love it or we don't. It's a greatly aggravated sin for any of us to receive the truth and to reject it. As opposed to having never heard it in the first place far more grievous to hear and sit, receive a sermon or a Bible study, and to do nothing about it, to not apply it to our hearts, far more serious than never to have heard it in the first place. With more light comes more responsibility. It's one thing for us to to say to our children, why didn't you do this? And they say, well, I didn't know. Another thing for us to say to our children, why did you do this? And they, and they said, uh, and they say to us, I didn't want to. I heard you, I knew what you said, but I didn't want to do it. Which of those two are we going to judge more harshly? They didn't know it, they were ignorant of what they should do, or they knew what they should have done and they basically thumbed their nose and 
said, I don't care. I'm not going to do it. John 12, 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father who sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. So Jesus is again saying he was not simply declaring and teaching his own doctrine. He was, but it wasn't simply or only his own doctrine, but was rather teaching and declaring what God had given to him, the Father had given to him. That's what he was uh, commanded to do, um, and that's what he was doing. And so, if they receive then Christ's teaching, the people receive Christ's teaching, Jesus is saying, basically, you're also receiving the Father's teaching if they reject Christ's teaching, then they're rejecting the Father's teaching. You can't divorce one from the other. The Father and the Son are unified as to the truth. You see, that's the paradigm that we are to have before us by way of true biblical unity. Not diversity in doctrine, not diversity in the truth. We ought to be striving to be like the Father and the Son who don't disagree as to the truth but are unified as to the truth. So likewise, that's our goal uh, as his followers, as the followers of Christ, to be one in truth. And then finally, verse 50, Jesus closes uh, this discourse with these words, and I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. So the Lord says that all who receive his gospel, receive his words, his truth that he brings, uh, which the Father has commissioned him, uh, to bring, receive everlasting life. As we receive Christ's words, what we receive in those words, when we believe, when we trust Him, is not a temporal life, but is everlasting life, which begins when we believe. Uh, we're not going to step, merely step into everlasting life when we die. Everlasting life begins the moment we, that we truly trust in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation. That is, again, what the Lord says. He that believeth in me hath everlasting life, Jesus says. So life and death Heaven and hell hinge upon receiving or not receiving the truth. And it's not up to us to, to say, 
well, I don't like that truth. And uh, I'm not going to receive that truth. I'm not going to follow that truth. Um, it's not parceled out. It's a package. It comes as Christ's truth. And we receive it all. Not the parts that we li uh, like and reject the parts we don't like. We receive all of this as a package. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I want all of God's truth? Or do I simply want the truth that I like? That I want to receive? Or do I truly want, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if it costs me something before others, do I want the truth of Jesus Christ? Or am I simply playing a game? because we don't have the right to tell God what we want and what we don't want by way of his truth. We receive it all or we receive it not at all. Let's uh, close in prayer. Please stand with me. Heavenly Father, glory be to thy name. May thou be exalted in our midst before our, uh, before our spiritual eyes that we would see thee in all the glory that shrouds thee, that envelops thee. That we may see thy glory as we here throughout thy word that the angels are shouting holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We pray our Lord help us to be those who are followers of Jesus Christ and his truth. That Lord we would realize that uh, thou art the one who is truth. To receive thee is to receive thy word and Lord, uh, to believe it, to love it, to walk in it. Thank thee, Lord, for thy truth that uh, was revealed through thy word this evening. Help us to go forth as thy people to walk in the light as thou art in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions uh, from our study this evening? No, but thank you very much for it. Well, thank you for joining us.